Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. Mark chapter 1. If you have a Bible, please open it to Mark chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the chair in front of you, or at least every other chair. And uh, if you don't have a Bible today, maybe if you've got yours, uh, I'd love for you to open it up and follow along with us. Or if you don't have a Bible, you just don't own one. Maybe you're not yet a Christian and you're just kind of here by invitation and checking this thing out. We'd, I'd love for you to follow along. One of the things we do here is we just work our way through books of the Bible. And uh, that's, that's probably 90% of what is our sermons are. They're just expositions through books of the Bible. And we find ourselves in... In one of the Gospels today, Mark chapter 1, we'll be in it for the next few months, and so I'd love for you to follow along. If you are using one of the Bibles underneath the chair in front of you, and you're not real familiar with where Mark is, you can can find that on page 588. And again, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that Bible and keep it as yours. Um, So as you're finding Mark chapter 1, a couple things I just want to mention. There's some young guys that are here today that have been away for a few months in this crazy little jaunt in the woods that the United States Army likes to call Ranger School, and um, they graduated this Friday, and we've got a few guys, so if you graduated from Ranger School on Friday, and you're here this morning, raise your hand, where you at? Come on, there's a couple guys, yeah, there's a couple, all right, there's, all right, yeah. Um, listen, I, I got an email from one of the young lieutenants several years ago that came through Crosspoint, and he reminded me, he just in the email, thanks, said, hey, man, thanks for always giving a shout-out to us, uh, you know, to have somebody take us to lunch afterwards, and I, I realize it's been a while since I've done that, and so in particular, these ranger school guys, they've been sleep-deprived and food-deprived for a couple months, so if they, if they bust out a, a little packet of peanut butter crackers in the middle of the sermon today, just give them grace, <laughs> let them go, it's okay, I know sometimes peanut butter can smell, and it kind of, you know, is distracting, but just let them eat it, um, and listen, if, if, if you're sitting around one of them, um, ask them to lunch, and I, I hope you have, uh, you know, the limit on your credit card is kind of high because they need to eat. 20 years ago, um, when I came through Fort Benning as a young soldier like them, uh, a family at the church I was going to asked me out to lunch and paid for my lunch, and actually I ended up marrying their daughter. And, um, <laughs> but so, guys, we can't promise you a wife, but maybe we can promise you a buffet lunch or something. But uh, thank you guys for your service, man. We we're so grateful. Many of these guys, listen, the deal about Ranger School is, is that the bullets are blanks in Ranger School. But many of these young guys, if not all of them, will go to units shortly where they will be deployed to places, where they will be leading men, where the bullets are real. And so let's pray for them and remember them. And in just a moment, I'll pray for them. And also, I just want to tag on to what Wayne said about community groups. Um, it, listen, if you're not, if Crosspoint's kind of your home, uh, we, I really encourage you to be thinking about getting involved in a community group if you're not already involved in one. Uh, we have been uh, a church here now for seven years. And when we started the church, basically meeting as a small group in, in uh, my living room, um, there's just 10 or 15 of us. And one of the greatest challenges of Uh, that I have noticed about leading a church that's growing, thank God for that, is being able to shepherd and care for people. And there's just no way that just four or five, six or seven pastors and elders and staff can care for a group of people that's in this room and all of the needs that all of us have in our lives. And so uh, if you're not in a community group, um, I'd encourage you to, to consider really prioritizing that. Listen, I know the challenges. I, mean, we, I have four kids um, that have homework and that are playing sports and going every which way but loose. And sometimes my wife and I just kind of feel like a taxi service for our kids for all their various activities, uh, coupled with working and all of that. Um, and so I, I know all of those sort of those objections. But I can tell you that being part of a community group here at Crosspoint for my wife and I has been an incredible source of blessing and encouragement. And honestly... There are times when our community group and I will roll along and it'll be at that afternoon and I'll be thinking, oh gosh, not that I don't love you guys wherever you are, but I'll just be thinking, about, I just kind of want to go home and veg, you know? 
But then all of these brothers and sisters will come over and just being together with other Christians, praying, looking at the scripture, encouraging each other, is such a, a buoy to my soul. And I, I, I can't imagine really doing life without it. So my one little plug for community groups. Well, let's do this. Let's read Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 14 through 20 this morning. I don't have any notes or anything on the screen other than the scriptures. And I really just have one overarching idea. (laughs) They're laughing because for the first, I don't know, five or six years of this church's existence, I used the word overarching a lot, and I apparently was mispronouncing it and saying overarching. And then we hired this young little whippersnapper named Robert Ward, and he came, and we just hired him, and then he's like, hey, Brad, um, can I sue you in my office? You know, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I thought, I, thought I, I was the boss. But anyway, he calls me in and says, uh, hey, uh, just so you know, uh, for the past six years, you've been butchering that word. It's actually overarching, not overarching. And so every time I say it, I, I try and find him in the audience and uh, make eye contact. The, the one overarching point that I want to make today is just this. Right? this is, we're going to look at this one great truth, and we're going to stare at it from several, several different angles, and then, and then we're going to look at some implications that flow from it from different types of people that are in this room. And here's this one overarching truth. That Jesus has come not just as a personal savior and forgiver of sins to those who repent and believe, as glorious and as important as that is. Not minimizing that in any way. But Jesus has come as the king and creator of all things to usher in a kingdom, a new age, whereby everything that is broken becomes restored. Everything that is out of place gets put in place so that everything goes to the glory of his name forever and ever and ever. So we're going to read this morning about Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Mark where he announces the beginning of his kingdom here now and then calls his first four disciples. So let me read and I'll pray and then we'll work through it. Mark chapter 1 verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, Casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. And followed him. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we come now to your scripture, we know that it's your word that has been written by you through the means of various authors over centuries. We come now and we humble ourselves to the truth of this scripture, knowing that it is your word. Father, I pray that you would help us to consider and understand what it means that Jesus is the king and that your kingdom has come and what it means to follow him. I pray that today you might give the gift of faith and repentance to people that are not yet believers in Jesus in this room. I pray that those of us who are already following you, that you would encourage us and renew our hope in your kingship. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a couple things that I want us to notice here in this just first couple verses where Jesus is, has come onto the scene now after John, his cousin, has been arrested. And Jesus is now announcing the kingdom of God, that it's at hand and we should repent and believe. The first thing I want you to notice is that, is that John has been arrested and it's almost as if Jesus has sort of been strategically waiting for John to be arrested. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I love the Gospel of Mark because it, 
it presents Jesus as sort of setting the tempo. Like the word immediately is used like 40 or maybe even more than that, 40 times in the Gospel of Mark. And it's, just a very, it's the shortest gospel, and it's the hardest hitting. It's the fastest moving, and it presents Jesus as in control, setting the tempo, healing people, then withdrawing himself and going ahead of the crowd. And, and I, I like that because in, in, I think, most modern American sort of evangelical culture, I think we've sort of dumbed down Jesus a little bit as an overly passive figure. You know, you see, in fact, you look at most pictures of Jesus, he's, he's kind of got blonde hair and blue eyes and looks like one of the Gibb brothers from the Bee Gees, you know, <laughs> which, I mean, actually, he was a, kind of a Middle Eastern Jewish man, but, but, but either way, he just looks a little, I don't know, like, kind of soft. Now, no, don't mistake, Jesus is tender and, and kind. He's the most kind and tender man that has ever lived, but but he's also the Lord and King of the universe. And, and so I, I like that Jesus seems to be setting the temple here. So John, his cousin, is arrested. And by the way, we'll read about the circumstances behind John's arrest when we get to Mark chapter 6. Evidently, John was preaching truth, and the leader there at the time, Herod, didn't like the truth that John was preaching, and John was preaching against his scandalous marriage to his brother's wife, this lady named Herodias, who happened to have a daughter who would have been... Herod's niece slash stepdaughter, and um, she comes out and does a little dance for him one day at a banquet, and evidently that was a little alluring to him, and he says, whatever you want, baby, I'll give it to you, and she says, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter, because her mom told her to ask for that, because she didn't like that John was preaching against her sin, and so John gets arrested, and then eventually gets beheaded, and now Jesus is on the scene, and so Jesus has come, but here's something else I want you to notice before we start talking about this, this idea of what the kingdom is, is that Jesus begins his ministry not in the epicenter of Jerusalem where most of the people are, kind of on the corner of Broad Street and Main Street, but he begins his ministry up in the north in Galilee, which is an interesting place to begin your ministry. I just... I think we should take note of that, that Jesus begins in sort of obscurity and humility. Contrast that, contrast that with just the kind of, the, again, the American ministry mindset that says you have to go big or go home. One of the things I wrestled with when we began this church was just getting inundated with advice and um, just publications that says this is how you plant a church. You get a whole bunch of people and you launch and you go big and you do all of these things and and listen, there may be some strategy behind that. I'm not, I'm not making a statement about people that want a lot. I mean, I, we want a lot of people to come and hear about Jesus. But there's, I think there's just something to note about the humility of Jesus and the relative obscurity that the creator of the universe begins his ministry in Galilee. And so he begins his ministry and he comes with this sort of simple phrase saying that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, let's, let's look at that, that sentence that Jesus utters there that's recorded here in Mark. The first thing that we need to understand is, is to understand what Jesus means by the kingdom of God. When I say kingdom, I don't know what you think of, but what I tend to think of uh, as a young child, I was sort of fascinated with medieval times and King Arthur and Lancelot and, you know, the joust. When I hear the word kingdom, I tend to think of a rolling English countryside and knights with armor and castles with little flags and tents and those big, huge chicken legs, you know, the, the, like the, the turkey kind of chicken legs and people sitting around a sort of banquet table pounding their, you know, gauntlet or goblet or whatever they're pounding, you know, more, you know, just this sort of, this regal imperial scene where there's this king, there's this sort of place that he is, that he is holding, but when Jesus speaks about the kingdom, I want you not to think so much in terms of a place or even a people, but think in terms of a rule and reign of God. In fact, think more in terms of a kingship rather than what we might traditionally think of as kingdom. And so when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he's not talking about establishing a sort of political rescue of Israel or a, a citizen uh, a, a, a city-state or a sort of Geneva of Christianity, but he's talking about the rule and reign of God that is now breaking into the earth and the world. 
There's something else that we need to understand about, about the kingdom of God, and it's that and this is difficult. It's difficult for us to think about, and it was certainly difficult for the first century Jews who were Jesus' early followers to think about. There's this aspect of how Jesus is establishing, he's inaugurating, he's beginning his kingdom, but it's not yet fully consummated at his first beginning. So let's kind of rewind all the way back to the beginning of time to, be, to Genesis chapter 1. God, of course, creates the world. He creates everything. He creates it good. And then he creates mankind. And he calls Adam and Eve and his creation not just good, but very good. Then God gives Adam and Eve a choice, and they rebel against God. Our first parents rebel against God, and now sin enters in, and death enters in. They're tempted by Satan in the garden. And now the kingdom of this earth has been in a sense, not because it was snatched away, but because God and his providence had a plan to glorify himself through the ages, the kingdom of this world has been handed over to Satan. And now this world is now in the clutches. Again, not outside of the providence of God, but now this kingdom is controlled by evil. And this kingdom advances, and God is breaking into this kingdom occasionally in the Old Testament through prophets and priests and kings, and he's beginning to form his people. And now when the time is ready, God is breaking into the darkness of this present age, into the kingdom of this dark world, and he's breaking in to begin and establish a sort of beachhead, an outpost of his kingdom that is to come. But what we have to understand is that when the kingdom of God comes in the person of Jesus, at that moment in Jesus' first coming, it's not fully and finally consummated. But God, in the first coming of Jesus, is establishing a sort of beachhead, an outpost, an inbreaking of his rule and reign that now he is growing and growing and growing for his glory until that time when he will come again and fully and finally establish his kingdom forever and ever and ever. And it is very helpful to understand where we are sort of in God's redemptive storyline. That we are in this process where Jesus has established his kingdom, but he hasn't yet fully consummated it. And friends, uh, by the way, that explains so many things. It explains why we still, still deal with sin. It explains why we're still dealing with sickness. It explains why sometimes evil and injustice still temporarily seems to triumph. Because God in his providence has determined to establish his kingdom and not fully consummate it in Jesus' first coming and to allow this stretch of now decades and centuries and thousands of years now until when Jesus comes again to fully and finally make everything right. And we are in this in-between time. In fact, the Bible calls them the last days. They're the last days not just because, you know, somebody wrote a book named 1984 or because we have the internet. (laughs) These are called the last days because the Bible has been calling them the last days since Jesus rose again in victory over the over the the grave and over death and sin. And so now we're in this time, this time when the kingdom is already here, but not yet fully consummated. So we're in this kind of tension where the king is here, he's established his rule in this foreign land, but it's not yet fully, fully consummated. Think of it like this way. Think of it, just think of now in terms of just kingdoms and think of it in terms of a sort of battle between two kingdoms. And we are all prisoners of war. We're prisoners of this kingdom that we were born into. We're born into sin. We're born into this human condition. We're prisoners of this dark kingdom. And Jesus has come, and in his first coming, in his life, in his perfect sinless life, he wins back our freedom through his humanity and through his voluntary substitutionary death on the cross where he now takes the punishment for the sin of all of his people. He takes the punishment for the rebellion of all people that will turn and trust in him and he rises again in victory over sin and death on the cross and now has established his kingdom and the gospel this word gospel literally just means good news it's a proclamation of what jesus has done so think of it we're now prisoners of war in a foreign kingdom jesus has established his kingdom he has won the battle fully and finally on his, in his death 
and resurrection in the cross, but his kingdom, the rule and reign, the implications of his rule and reign and victory are not yet fully complete. And now the gospel is this good news, is comes to us, this courier runs. Think, of, think about these two kingdoms at war, and we're prisoners of war, and now the, the battle has been won, and this messenger rides on his horse or runs, like in Marathon, in fact. He would, you know that, that Greek battle marathon where that Greek guy came, and the Persians were attacking the Greece, and he runs from Athens, I think it was, to the city called Marathon, like 26 miles, that's where we get the word marathon from, and I think he actually died when he got there, but when he, and he's announcing, we've won, the victory has been won, we're free, and that's what the gospel is. The gospel is a proclamation of the fact that the king is here and we are now free. And friends, that, that's really important because that, that is the sort of dividing line between Christianity and every other religion. It's that the gospel is a proclamation of what has happened, setting us free. It's not a sort of list of advice on how we need to live. So this messenger has come. In this, in this particular instance, it's Jesus himself. The messenger has come and has announced, you're free. I'm here. The king is here. Believe in me. And he's not saying, you know, you should really do this a little bit better and you, you, should, you, should, you should do this a little bit better. And here, if you, if you straighten yourself out here, then you can be part of this kingdom. He is announcing something that has already happened, his kingship, and not giving us advice on what we should do. The gospel is a proclamation of the good news, which is Christianity, as opposed to advice, which is religion. You see, that, that's kind of the dividing line. A lot of times we sort of get those things mixed up where we think sort of Christianity is come and do better. When actually, first and foremost, the message of the Bible, Christianity, is this proclamation that Jesus is king. He has freed you if you will turn and trust and believe in him. And now from that flows all sorts of great advice. But we can't put that advice before the proclamation. Remember when we were going through Ephesians and we looked at how in the scriptures, especially in Paul's letter, that the indicative or the statement about what God has done always comes before the imperative of what we should do? So it, when you read through the Bible, look for the indicatives, the statements about what God has done before you read the imperatives, how we should act in light of it. So the message of Christianity, the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus is not do better and then you can become. It is I have done this for you, trust in me, and then you can become what I have already made you. That's Hebrews 10, 14, that he has once and for all perfected those whom he is sanctifying. It's like we are becoming what he has already made us. And so Jesus comes and announces the message of this kingdom. And he says that the only proper response to his kingdom is to repent and believe. Again, notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, if you will obey the law. He does not say, get ready, clean your houses, polish up your silverware, mow your lawns, pull the weeds, look busy, stop doing this or that. He says, repent and believe. And to repent is to turn away from, to change your mind and direction from trusting in yourself and turn in faith and belief in who Jesus is. Jesus is calling these people and us to turn away from our sin, turn from trusting in other things for our right standing with God and to turn to him in faith. Now, don't misunderstand. If you're maybe new to Christianity or you're investigating what it means to be a Christian, don't misunderstand that when I say when Jesus says to repent from sin and believe in him, that all of a sudden when you do that, all of a sudden you become sort of sinless. In fact, maybe one of your objections to Christianity is that Christians sort of think that they're better than everybody else. Now, actually, we just realize how bad we are and we need a savior. In fact, William Arnaud, this Old Testament, I'm sorry, this old British, not Old Testament, old British guy back in the 1800s that I quote often, remember that quote? I don't remember it verbatim. In fact, don't put it up on the screen. But remember that beautiful quote where he says that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not, but that the Christian is taking God's side against their sin, whereas the non-Christian is taking their sin side against the dreaded God. And, and so to be a Christian and to repent and trust in Jesus is not to say that you're perfect or sinless. 
But it's to say that you realize just what an absolute wreck you are. It's like Doug read from Psalm 24 at the beginning. Who can ascend the hill and be pure in their, in their heart and clean hands? Nobody is the answer to that question. Only Jesus. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus is the only one with a pure heart and clean hands. And he has ascended the hill, Golgotha, and died for you and rose again if you will trust in him. So turn away from looking to yourself and look to Jesus. Friends, that is the gospel. That's Christianity. It's not advice. It's a proclamation. And that's what Jesus is saying now to these people. So that's the kingdom. It's the kingship of Jesus that has begun now. And now we get this snapshot in what it looks like in the lives of four men. Let's read again verses 16 through 20. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Notice that that's a process there. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. I want you to notice a couple things. This was very unusual. Jesus makes the first move, right? This is not the way teachers and rabbis did it in the first century, in first century Ju- Judaism. They would wait for a follower to come to them. And so in one sense, Jesus is very humble, but in another sense, he's, he's really bold. I mean, he's starting up in Galilee, which wouldn't be the place that you would start if you really wanted to attract a following, but yet he has the sort of gumption to, instead of waiting for the students to come to him, which is what all the other rabbis would do, he goes and picks his own followers, and he goes to them and says, hey, hey, you, drop what you're doing and follow me. This is, there's no paradigm for that. Jesus makes the first move. And friends, that's a beautiful picture of our salvation, isn't it? Thank God that Jesus doesn't wait for us to make the first move to him. In a small, little, beautiful way, he's modeling how we come to Christ. And friends, that is, that is gracious good news that Jesus comes to us. So he calls them in verse 17, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. Now I want to I work through a couple things here that, that I think... Might, have, might cause us to kind of wonder and have a little bit of uh, just kind of scratching our heads as to how it worked out for these men. I don't think that when Jesus called these first four men that it meant that it was the first time they'd ever heard Jesus. I don't think it meant that it was the first time that, uh, that they never fished again because we know from the Gospels that they actually, they actually fished again. And we know from the other accounts in the Gospels that they also saw their family again. And so if we read this too quickly and we don't read it in conjunction with the rest of the Bible, you almost kind of get this idea that Jesus is calling for a sort of mindless, thoughtless obedience. You know, like Andrew and Simon are kind of doing fishing and all of a sudden, you know, Jesus kind of sneaks up from behind a rock and says, hey, psst, follow me. Huh? Okay. And they just sort of run off. And then, and then these other guys, James and John, sons of Zebedee, and they're sitting in a boat, and, and all of a sudden Jesus sort of kind of appears out of nowhere and says, follow me, and they're, sorry, Dad, and boom, gone. This kind of dad's left, kind of with stuff, fish flying out of the boat. And we kind of get this sort of, and I think that if we don't think about this deeply, uh, for some of us, that can become kind of a discouragement. Because you look at your life and you say, well, how could, possibly, how could I possibly leave all these things? Well, let's go to Luke chapter 14. Let me read Luke chapter 14. It kind of digs down a little bit deeper into the call that Jesus has on these early disciples and on us. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Let me read this. Now, great crowds accompanying him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone, listen to these now, listen to the, listen to the, just the strength and clarity of Jesus' words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So is Jesus calling us to hate our mama? No, because we know in other places he's talking about, don't, 
we shouldn't even hate our enemies. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, helped me with this one when I listened to a message from him on this passage. That Jesus isn't calling us to a sort of active hate of our parents or brothers and sisters. He's calling us to a hate in comparison. That compared to our devotion and love for Jesus and his kingship and his rule and reign, that everything else in our life, yes, even our most treasured relationships, in comparison to our heart for Jesus, should pale in comparison and even look like hate. He goes on to say, whoever does not bear his own cross, verse 27, and comes after me cannot be my disciple. Listen to this now, speaking about considering and thinking about, not just a sort of blind, thoughtless following, but a thoughtful following of Jesus. Verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is saying here is not just sort of, I'm not just sneaking up on you, peering out from behind a rock while you are minding your own merry business and saying, boo, follow me. And those of you that kind of just stop for half a second, think about it, can't be my disciple. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, consider it. Now he's he's saying, consider it. Think about it. Count the cost. Is there anything in your life that you would hold on to between me and you? Is there anything else in your life that is a sort of functional savior, a functional king for you that's between you and me? And nothing can come between you and me, even if it's your most treasured possession or relationship. And Jesus is calling us to a sort of radical affection for him. So that everything else in comparison looks like hate. It's not actually hate because he calls us to love and serve one another. But he's calling us to a radical affection for him. Friends, only a king who is the king of everything has the authority to do this. So do you see what's happening here? Don't miss the bigger picture that that Mark is painting for us that I want us to see. We can't stop at the end of Jesus' announcement of his kingdom and, say, and just read into that, oh, the only way into the kingdom is to repent and believe. So I've got to repent and believe. I've got to turn and trust. Okay, I got that. Brad, you've quoted that thing from William Arnaud, the British guy back in the 1800s, about 1,500 times. I get that. I get that. I've got to trust in Jesus. I've got to have my sins forgiven. But don't miss now that Jesus doesn't just come as a sort of personal savior, like your own little Jesus bobblehead doll that sort of makes everything go away. He comes now as a king who commands us to make him our all-consuming affection and to order our lives in light of not just his saving work, but his kingly work. And Jesus calls his disciples to this type of followership, not mindless, thoughtless following but rather decisive and all-consuming following. Okay, let me end now with a few applications to various groups of people that might be in here. Remember, our one overarching thought is, is that Jesus has come as king, not just to establish a way by which individual persons get saved, but to establish his kingdom and rule and reign so that all who will turn and trust in him become part of his kingdom and march towards this glorious end where everything eventually glorifies God. A few applications of this truth. To the person who has compartmentalized Jesus, and at various times we're all in this, in this category, are we not? You consider yourself a Christian, maybe, but if we could be honest, Jesus isn't really the king of every aspect of your life, 
He's more like an occasional consultant. He's the means maybe to an end. Maybe you've kind of bought into a sort of self-help, self-esteem gospel that's a false gospel. And you've seen Jesus as a, a sort of occasional consultant that helps you live a, a, a more successful life. Maybe you're a businessman or a, a young college-age adult or maybe you're a soldier or, or maybe you're even a lifelong churchgoer and you think you've kind of taken care of the big things with Jesus and you've repented and believed and you kind of go through the motions and, and see that the, the really the, the, the tricky thing about it is, is you will confess everything that biblical Christianity confesses but, but the kingship of Jesus hasn't really worked its way down into every area of our lives. And because, well, quite frankly, because we're weak American Christians who really don't want to get personal, who really don't want to offend each other, because tolerance is sort of our highest ideal here in this culture. Uh, you know, God forbid that we actually kind of call each other, hey, what, what's going on in your life, brother? And so we just, we're okay with kind of just having this confession, but not true kingship. What would it look like for you to follow Jesus as king? What is in between you and Jesus? Jesus is not the means to an end. Think about that. What would it look like for you to truly follow Jesus in every area of your life? I pray that you would not be like the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and Jesus says, no, no, sell everything you have. I, I know you've obeyed all the laws, but sell everything you have and follow me. I don't think that necessarily the application of that is that everybody in this room needs to sell everything that we have. I think the application there primarily is, is that if there's anything that we're not willing to give to Jesus and order in line with his kingship, whether it's a relationship or whether it's a vocation or whatever it is, then we are staring at our functional Savior and false God. Second type of person that I think may be in this room, the wounded and weary Christian who has been tossed to and fro and beat up by a mixture of your own sin and people that have sinned against you. <laughs> I've been in this category, primarily my sin wounded and weary. You've battled the same sin for years. You feel like you've been treated like a pinata by the people that, that you trusted most. How is the kingship of Jesus good news for you? Oh, I could talk for hours just on this one point, just thinking and encouraging you. And if you're in this place and you need further discussion or help or prayer, boy, the pastor's Folks in this church would love to talk to you more deeply about this, but the way Jesus is king is good news for the weak and wounded, struggling Christians, friends, is when you understand that dynamic that I talked about earlier about how Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom, he's established it, he's begun it, but he hasn't fully yet consummated it and finalized his rule and reign in this dark place, and we know that we're sort of in this in-between time. Friends, understanding that, will bring such clarity to your trial that you're going through because you realize that because God, in his wise, sovereign way, has deemed to allow sin and suffering and trial and temptation and disease and wickedness and everything that ills us to continue for a time so that his kingdom may advance, so that he will be shown above and beyond this dark age is more beautiful, more preferable, and that through his people, he is reigning and ruling. Friends, when we begin to see that, we begin to be able to cope with what we still struggle with. That's what Romans 8 is all about, where it says that this creation is yearning with eager anticipation for that day when Jesus will fully and finally come again and establish his rule. I love that line um, from is it Lord of the Rings or maybe a C.S. Lewis book where it says that everything sad will become untrue. Friends, do you realize that's what we're marching towards? Everything sad will become untrue. And it will become untrue because of the rule and reign of our King Jesus, 
who whether or not we see it is working all things together for his glory and the good of his people. And to be a citizen of Jesus' kingdom means that your life is not just these 70 or 80 or 90 years, but you were made for eternity to be a citizen of this kingdom forever and ever and ever. And there is coming a day, weak and wounded Christian, when you will be able to look back on your life and say that these momentary light sufferings, as 2 Corinthians 4 puts it, are preparing for us a beautiful and eternal weight of glory. Finally, to the unbeliever, you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, and you're here, and I'm very grateful that you're here. And we always assume that there are people in the room who are consciously not yet believers in Jesus. (laughs) I want to speak to you directly and tell you, remember that part when I was talking about repenting and believing, and about how uh, the gospel is advice The gospel is a proclamation and not advice. Remember that part? You may be kind of savvy, and you're saying, okay, Brad, I get that. I see see that the gospel is not a bunch of to-do lists, but yet you're saying that I have to repent and believe in order to be a citizen of this kingdom, to have Jesus as my king, to be forgiven, to trust in him. And you may be thinking, well, well, there you go. You snuck a little to-dos in on me. You gave me a little advice before you hit me with the good news. Well, Well, here's where the good news of the gospel actually gets even more glorious. The good news for you is that the very thing that Jesus commands you to do, you don't, you can't do it. And so here's what happens when God saves a person. He gives them the very thing that he requires of them. That's why in Ephesians 2, just go home this afternoon and, and read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which is one of the briefest and best explanations of what it means to be a Christian in the gospel and the whole Bible. The Bible says that Jesus actually makes you alive and he gives you faith. He gives you repentance as a gift. So he gives you the very thing that he requires of you. So again, remember the king and his kingdom? The battle has been won. Death and sin and everything that defeats us has been conquered on the cross. And Jesus comes now and announces his victory. And the the announcement itself brings life to those that God is saving. It actually has the power to bring you alive. It doesn't just say, if you'll just do this. If if you'll just do this, then you can become a Christian. The glorious grace of the good news of the gospel is that it gives the very thing that it requires. The power of the gospel has the power to save. So if you're an unbeliever in here today, don't buy into the lie that, oh, this sounds so good, but I've got to conjure up repentance and belief. That's not true. It's not like 99% God, and then just 1% you, you sort of add that little bit of work to the table. He makes you alive. That's how good it is. That's how good it is. And you say, well, I can't believe, I I mean, I kind of want that to be true, but I don't know. Friends, don't look down beneath the ice of your own heart to find the warmth of God's love. Look to Jesus. I mean, do you even have a hope that that could possibly be true? Do you even think that that might be you? Friends, I think that's a sign that God right now is giving you the very thing that he's requiring of you, repentance and belief. And he's calling you not just to sort of secure your destiny so that you can be a good little person and run off and go to Sunday school and tuck in your shirt and comb your hair and learn Christianese. He's calling you to be a citizen of the kingdom, of the kingdom. And then here's what he does, friends, and this is where it's so beautiful. Back to the picture of the, of the messenger announcing freedom. This is what Jesus does. Picture that messenger coming to announce, coming to prisoners that have been in captivity. He comes and he announces freedom to them. In this case, the messenger is the king himself. And he says, victory is here. Believe in the gospel. And he gives gifts to his people. He gives them life. He gives them repentance. He gives them faith so that they can believe. And all of a sudden, these people now are citizens of his kingdom. But they're still where they are. You know, they're still on the 
on the faraway corner of this dark kingdom. But all of a sudden, they are now free. They're citizens of this kingdom. And Jesus doesn't just float away. He doesn't just ride off on his horse and say, figure it out now until I come back and, and establish everything fully and finally. He says now, follow me. And so there's this dusty band of beaten up pardoned rebels who, who now have been made alive by Jesus and they begin to follow him on this journey. They've been saved because he saved them. He brought life to them. And now they're in this process, what the Bible calls sanctification, where they're following Jesus on this journey back home, back to the kingdom that is to come. They're following him. And here's the deal. There's this whole train of people. There's, there's white people, and there's, there's black people, and there's, there's, there's Asian people, and there's Latin people, and there's, there's, there's German people, and there's Russian people, and there's Italian people, and there's Californian people. There's all types of people in this train following Jesus who have been made alive by the proclamation of the good news of the kingship of Jesus. And, and they're following him. They're like this. They're on this little caravan. They're on this trail going home for these next decades that God still gives them life. And they're, they're following the king. And here's the deal is they start to live in a certain way. They start to treat each other as the king would have them treat each other because now they're under his rule and reign. And the king has given them this book of his words that, that tell them how they should love each other. And they're part of now this caravan marching home. And he calls them to follow him. And he says to these, to these pardoned rebels that are now citizens of his new kingdom, don't just come and follow me and kind of get in the middle of the line and put your head down and march until we get home. But he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And so, so these people, these pardoned rebels are following Jesus, cutting a path through this dark kingdom as they march home and they're on the edges of it, becoming fishers, saying to other people, hey, well, why wouldn't you come? Like, why wouldn't you get on this? This caravan of grace and good news. Like, why won't you follow this king? And so, so as a church, as a dusty little part of that trail, we're, we're now not just in the middle with our head down, but, but Jesus makes us Fishers of men on the edge of the caravan saying, so come on, come on, like come on. And, and the onlookers, the people that are still captive, that, that haven't yet believed the good news, are looking at this caravan, just how they treat each other, like how they love each other, how they forgive sin, how they get over arguments, how they, how they lay down their preferences, how they don't fuss with each other over silly little things, how they seem to be people that are consumed not just with their own personal status, but with the kingship of the one that they're following. And he's leading, like he's leading them in what 2 Corinthians calls a joyful, triumphal procession. And they're going on this path home. And the Bible says that to those that God is saving is the smell of life. And to those that are rejecting him, it's the smell of death. And that's not, our, that's not our responsibility, friends. Ours is just to follow the king and to say to people who are still off the path in darkness, say, just, just come, like, just come. Like, I don't know all about it, but just come, come and follow the king. That's what he's doing. Friends, if you're a Christian, do you realize how big and glorious and magnificent the Christian life is when you see it in that context? And if you're not a Christian, friends, like, like come. Come and come join this merry band of misfits who are still very much in process following the king. Following the king. Jesus says the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Follow me and I will put your life on a mission and put you in this trail home where everything sad will become untrue where, where there will be no more cancer there will be no more disease there will be no more lust there will be no more orphans there will be no more racism there will be no more young men getting shot by terrorists. There will be no more battles against the flesh. There will be no more despair. There will be no more babies that aren't born healthy. There will be no more embezzlement. There will be no more pornography. There will be no more pain. 
and there'll be home and a king in his kingdom and his rule and reign, which will reign forever and ever and ever. This is how the Bible describes it in Revelation 21. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's pray, friends. And Father, now as we respond to your word, as we read from Psalm 24 to begin this service, Lord, I pray that your people would lift up their eyes, lift up the gates, open wide the gates of our heart for the King to come. Lord, for the little nooks and crevices and corners of my heart that I block off from the utter and complete good kingship of Jesus, Lord, would you, would you destroy the doorposts of those closets in our hearts? And with the followers of Jesus in this room, follow you in every way. And would you put us on this great and grand mission where we are not just the holders of a sort of personal salvation, but we are a pardoned band of rebels that you're making into fishers of men, even in just the ordinary aspects of our lives, just modeling and loving and joyfully serving one another and letting that become an aroma to an onlooking world. Lord, would you do that? Would you give us that perspective today as we, as we think about this scripture? And Lord, for those in this room who came in not yet believers in Jesus, Lord, would you give them the very thing that you require of them? Would you give them eyes to see Jesus, ears to hear his words, and a heart to believe them? And Lord, even now, would that person make a decision to turn away from themselves to trust in Jesus. Lord, I pray these things for your glory and our good in Jesus' name.